This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Joel Evan. Now, Joel is a former Oakland and San Francisco police officer and current holistic health coach. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into policing, the addiction and homeless epidemic through a police officer's eyes, the vaccine mandates that took his career, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Joel Evan. Enjoy. Well, Joel, I want to start by saying thank you so much for having just gone through some sort of horrendous food poisoning style illness to jumping on the podcast this morning. And welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, brother. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I was just telling you offline before we jumped on that I think I contracted some kind of food poisoning um, just two days ago. And you were like, are you sure you can even do this? And I'm feeling a lot better today. I feel great, actually. And so I use a lot of my tricks and a lot of my natural protocols to get me better and rely on some other good people to help me out. And so, yeah, here I am. I think proof, the proof is that some, I think some of the things I'm doing is working also. Absolutely. We're just kind of literally repeating what we were talking about because I think it's an important thing. There's this, I think, illusion that if you follow all these protocols, then you'll never get sick. And, you know, you watch the film, was it Unbroken or Unbreakable? You know, he doesn't in that, but that's a fictional movie. Most normal people do get some sort of illness. Um, and so people are immediately scrambling. Well, I don't like this. I don't like the way my stomach feels. Give me some pills. Give me some potions. I don't like this, this flu-like symptoms. Um, but as we were talking, I think people forget that sometimes you just, you've got to suck it up. Like being ill is horrible, but that's just a part of being the human. And sometimes you can't make that go away. And by filling yourself with all these other chemicals, you're actually only making it worse. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that happened to me. And I was just telling you in, in May, I got the C virus. I think, I don't know. I didn't get tested, but this May I got it. Now my prior life, uh, not too long ago, just like, uh, two years ago or what have you was, I was a first responder. We'll sure. We'll talk about that. I was a police officer and I was in the height of like the tenderloin and like when, when it was going rampant and, uh, I never got sick. I was working all the time, working, you know, all kinds of crazy hours, never got sick. So how you would think by now I'd have some, you know, good antibodies or whatever. And I got sick. I was sick for, I was down for like five days, two days, really bad with just like throbbing headaches. And it's funny to that notion. Uh, I had, I don't get headaches. So for me to get a headache is very odd. And I had just a throbbing, pounding headache for two days and I didn't have Tylenol. We don't have that in our house. 
So it wasn't even an option for me. And I was so miserable. There's no way I was going to drive to a store. But because it wasn't even an option, at that point, I, I felt like, man, I might have even taken that just to give me some relief to function better. But I didn't have it as an option. So there was nothing to, to rely on. So I had to just go back to suffering. And I think you're right. A little bit of suffering is good. We need to We need to suffer a little bit. We need to endure these things. And taking something quick like an antibiotic or something, if I, if I were to go to the hospital for this stomach poisoning that I had recently, if I were to go to the hospital, you know what, you know what they would do? They'd give me antibiotics. Now, when I think about that, anti meaning like against, bio meaning life, like you are killing all life. And that's what antibiotics do. They kill your gut bacteria in such a way that even the good bacteria is create, uh, gets lost in that. And so the, the bad bacteria eventually overtakes in the long run, and then you have future problems. So I'm really glad that I have some of these natural remedies that I can rely on. And sure, it's not like instinct, right? Like, oh man, I pop a pill and I'm feeling great. I was going through various, I have a lot of different things and I was going through different protocols using essential oils. Yeah, nothing happened right away. Um, but you know, here I am just really a day and a half later and I'm back. So you know, you got to suffer a little bit. I think suffering, you're right. Suffering is good. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's good to hear that from wellness, you know, experts as it were, because yeah, there's almost this, this facade of, you know, if you are plant-based or you're a carnivore or, you know, you, you do whatever, then you're never going to have any, any cry, any uh, discomfort in your life. And that's complete bullshit. You know, you should be seeking discomfort. And when this stuff happens, if there are things that aren't going to make it worse, that can ease the symptoms, of course, you're not looking to deliberately make it worse. But this, you know, I've got a sniffle, let me immediately reach for cold formula. I think that that kind of mentality is, uh, it, it benefits the people that sell cold formula, but I don't think it's the best <laughs> thing for the human being. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking as well, right? Um, I don't know if you interviewed Dr. Anna Lemke. She wrote the book, Dopamine Nation. She'd be a great a person on your podcast, but we were talking about this. It's not a new concept, but she talks about it in her book, uh, Dopamine Nation. But like, hey, here we are. You know, we are more prone to doing things based on avoiding pain and seeking seeking pleasure, right? But she was saying there's sometimes we need to actually dive into pain, and that's called hormesis, right? Stressing the body, doing things like cold therapy. Like those are all stressors, but sometimes we need to do that. It's actually a good thing. This suffering can be a little bit anyways, and these microdoses can be very, very helpful. And I think for me, the long story of this all is man, how much better of a coach will I be? Because I can empathize with all the people that, that are talking to me. If I was a guy who never, ever got sick, how could I ever know like what these people are going through and how to better get and how to get them better knowing that I went through it too. So in the long run, it's all a win. Yeah. Well, it's funny as well, because you talk about deliberately stressing in our professions where we were both served. There's, it's almost sometimes misunderstood and you get people that are working shift works and getting mandatory and, you know, seeing and doing horrendous things and then coming off shift and the next day getting up at 5 a.m. and running 20 miles because they saw it on social media. And it's like, well, sometimes no, like your your day to day life is hormesis. You know, have I got the right hormesis? Um, yeah. You know, you are literally stressing yourself all the time. A lot of times for us, it's the opposite. Yes, you need to be fit. Yes, you need to be strong. But it's the down regulation of our nervous system that's important. Yeah, we're so prone. I think the alpha male and of course, there's alpha females too, but I'll just use the term the alpha male, right? But especially in police and fire, it's kind of that bravado, right? And you just go, 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 go. And any, at least in the past, it was... If you were to show any kind of like chink in your armor, like a, that's a sign of weakness, like you're soft, like what are you doing, 
Like, just get up and keep moving. Um, and I can just think of all the times, like you just said, I mean, I've done some stupid things too, where I, I intentionally did this, <laughs> where I would, uh, I would work a shift or something. And then within like three hours of sleep or something, and then there was a race, like a marathon. The next day I'd go work overtime at like 5am and like, I had like two hours and I, and I'm a big health guy. Like I understand the value of sleep and how dumb that was, but, uh, I guess I just wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't thinking, but I, I was like, oh, this will be easy overtime. Like I, sh- I should do this. And just doing stupid stuff like that, and it just completely wrecks your body. And I know a lot of first responders and stuff, they don't value sleep. They think, and that, and the sleep is just a way of recovery. So I'm using sleep as an example for down regulation. They don't, we don't value it. We think we'll sleep, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And I know a lot of even clients that I work with in the weight loss, like they've got everything dialed in. And I'm like, you know, the one thing that's missing here, I'm looking at your life is sleep. If you just dialed that in and went to bed a little bit earlier, and restored yourself, I think you'd actually lose those last couple of five pounds that you're seeking and they don't want to do it. <laughs> so it's just funny because it's that alpha mentality of like, yeah, I'd rather just exercise more to get out of the problem. It's like, nah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it was Dr. Kurt Parsley was was telling me way, way at the very beginning of this podcast, um, six years ago now, if I remember rightly, for every hour of sleep you lose, meaning you're up burning the, you know, the, the candle at both ends, you actually lose an hour and a half of productivity. So for all the entrepreneurs beating their chest, you know, again, I'll sleep while I'm dead, you know, working through the night, just did an all nighter. Um, you know, thank you, Adderall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're actually productivity wise, you're actually hurting yourself. So to make sure you get those either side of eight hours that you're supposed to get. And certainly as a responder, when you're off shift, when you can is so important and you will be a better first responder if you invest in that. Yeah. And I mean, and, and being a first responder for most of us is not our only life, right? Like, what about your families? Like, how do you contribute to them? How do you show up as a dad, as a husband, as a brother? So it's it's not just one, it's not just that piece. It's like, how else do you show up? So that's, I think, even a bigger piece. Absolutely. Well, I want to really explore the wellness side. And that's the kind of newer part of your your timeline. Let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, wow. Oh, we're going there today, huh, James? We go there every time on Behind the Shield podcast. (laughs) Okay. So I was born in Fairfield, California. It's a small suburban town. Um, It's about an hour away from San Francisco and about 45 minutes from Sacramento. So it's right in between. Um, You know, not a a lot of people would know. They have a mall there, though. So that's what made it popular, I guess. And so my dad was, he was a police officer. And my mom worked in, at a place called Mare Island, which was like a naval base. And uh, when people ask me, what does your mom do? She's, she told me she paints submarines. So that's what I would, I would always say. She painted submarines. But she had various government jobs. And then, but that was like when I knew her, uh, you know, as, she grew, as I grew older, she was working for Mare Island. She was you know, painting submarines and doing, I have no, I, God knows what else she was doing. But that was one of her, one of her jobs. So, um, and then as far as family dynamics, I have uh, I have a brother who's so it's interesting. Like I grew up kind of as an almost only child until about eight, and then I had a brother. So and it was it, it wasn't an accident. It was it was planned, but I don't know if it was planned to be that delayed. Um, but so I was like the older. So for my brother, I was always really excited for him. You know, there was never any like jealousy, and I was always very much like I'll be the older brother to like, and I hope he's like better than me. And I just remember like you know 
playing baseball with him and like pitching balls faster and just wanting to see him excel and be better than me. So that was always our relationship. I was like the, you know, older brother, uh, bigger brother. But, you know, it's interesting because you're asking me like, what was the family dynamics? And if you were to ask me this just in a very like surface level question, my family dynamics were great. Like I had a good childhood. It was, we were middle-class people. I didn't have any, you know, issues, you know, in in a sense. Um, But it's funny because my wife will ask me these questions as I think maybe wives are really good at these things, but like, and it used to really bother me. It used to like really annoy me that she would ask me these questions. I'm like, what what else do you want to know about me? Like I've told you these things, but like diving deeper, like, but, but tell me more, but like, tell me more about your, your family. Right. And now as someone who's always just kind of looking at my own journey, really, and I'll tell you why, because I'm, I'm really evaluating myself as how I show up as a dad for my, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And so this is why this comes up a lot is how am I showing up for them? What stories am I playing that I had as a kid that are now showing up for, for them, for me? And how is that looking? Because some of the dynamics for our relationship is not working. And so I'm really been evaluating my old my story of who who I was, right, as a kid. And so really the the interesting thing is like dynamics wise, yeah, I had a great life, not, no nothing traumatic or anything happened. Um but you know, I think our family was just somewhat disconnected. Like um and what I mean by that is, you know, my dad, we didn't have like family dinners together. That's really important in our household right now. You know, the, we all meet at the same time. We have dinner, we we meet, and we didn't have that. Like my dad, there'd be a TV on the background and he'd be watching TV usually. And then he might get dinner at a certain time, my mom. And then usually my brother and I would eat at roughly the same time. But it wasn't, there wasn't like that connection, that dynamic, right? Um, so I think that's, that's interesting. Um, and then the other thing, and I'm just thinking this in terms of like raising young boys is, you know, I grew up in a household where it wasn't like I was spanked tremendously. Like, yeah, I got a couple of spankings here and there, but um, I at least grew up with a good healthy fear of my dad. Like, oh man, I don't want to disappoint him. I knew my mom I could push a little bit before something would happen, but my dad, I would never like never cross because like I knew something was going to happen, right? And, you know, now showing up as a dad for my kids, I will naturally revert to using almost fear tactics, right? Like do this or else. And it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it doesn't work at all. And then I don't spank them. So like, because I don't want to build a relationship of fear with them. That's not my intention, which I knew that's how I grew up, right? Was based on this fear-based model. And so, you know, that's that's kind of the way I look at it in, in terms of just giving you like a snippet of my childhood. Um, but yeah, my dad, a uh, police officer, worked 23 years doing that or so. Um, and uh, how much? I mean, it depends how much you want to know. I can keep going. I can keep you. I can take you through high school and everything else. Yeah, well, we will in the sec. Absolutely. But okay. before we yeah. do, a couple of things. So, firstly, you said your mom said she painted submarines. She was probably like coming out of the water with a with a painted face and slitting throats, and that was all black ops. So, I would look into her naval history for a start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she. Uh, well, she was definitely surrounded by a whole bunch of chemicals. God, who knows what she was doing there, man. Um, so with the uh, the discipline though, I was raised, I was I was beaten a lot, and yeah, I'd use the word beaten because it was with large wooden implements. So it wasn't a little slap on the thigh; it was you know military canes and wooden. Remember Doctor Skull shoes? They're like a wooden flip flop. Yeah, I end no, up with but- these little dog footprints on my ass from being hit so many times. 
But um, okay, yeah, but no, you were definitely beaten, James. Like, yeah. there's no doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I did so, not have that. But you, you know, a lot of us in that generation grew up said, "Well, I turned out fine," and then your intent yeah. is now. I didn't think I was going to hit my kid with with sticks and things, but okay. And I and when my son was kind of, you know, toddler onwards, it'd be a little pat on the on the thigh, but. I didn't it didn't feel right and then I went through the whole American timeout thing and I tried that for a, a heartbeat until my son called me on it because you're supposed to do I think for every year of their age is, is a minute in timeout and then you say all right we're gonna go out of timeout do you understand what you did and my son one day goes I don't want to come out of timeout and I was like well fuck what am I supposed to do now <laughs> yeah so then the next thing and we're talking about an age now where they're really starting to comprehend and be able to interact the real aha moment for me was was instilling kindness because you look at the core of everything behavior how they interact with other children what we would call manners it's all ultimately are you being kind or unkind um and a lot of times people have told me oh you know he's such a kind kid he's so well behaved whatever and it's you know what do you do expecting you know, do you do you smack him like no I just taught him, you know, just think of everything that you're going to do. Is it a kind action or is it an unkind action? And even on the uh, road, you think about, you know, if you're riding someone's ass, if you don't use your blinker, all these things, are you being kind on the road or are you being unkind? If you're being unkind, you're driving like an asshole, you're probably going to kill someone. You know what I mean? So it literally expands to everywhere. But just like you coming from being beaten myself and having that, it didn't do me any any damage. I've actually just found a better way of doing it where you don't have to instill fear in your child. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, you know, what's interesting too, because now I always look back at my life and I, I never, I didn't know I was going to be a police officer actually. And I didn't think I would be. And I, (laughs) I actually thought I'm much better than my dad. I'm not going to be a police officer. That's what he was. I'll even do something better. And so I thought, oh, as I got into college and was trying to evaluate what I would do in my life, I thought maybe I'll work for the FBI because they seem like a step up than like just some normal local police officer. And, um, you know, but one of the things that comes back for me is, and I think maybe a good trait for me that helped, not a good trait in many ways, but because my mom was very emotionless. Um, she wasn't the most, um, like she wasn't the most expressive person in terms of like, you know, she wasn't somebody that I go talk to my feelings about. Of course she loved me or like, and she still does to this day, like abundantly. But uh, the example I like to give about my mom is like, even to this day, if I go and walk into her house, right. I'm like, Hey mom, like, you know what, you know, haven't seen you in a while or whatever. She'll say, Hey, and then she's like, Joel, did you pay that bill? Or something like something like completely like, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. But my mom's way of like really showing love to me was that and looking out for me was like asking those questions, right? Like, did you pay your bill? Did you do this? Did you know? Cause she's just looking out for me. But it wasn't like I felt like that doesn't, you know what I mean? That's a different <laughs> sometimes you need a hug. Sometimes, you know, if you look at the five love languages or something, you know, everyone's different. And especially as a kid, I don't think that was the best. Now being a police officer and going into like difficult situations, sometimes you need to compartmentalize wherever you're at. <laughs> you know this too. Like, um, and I read your book, like there's times, you know, you're going to a fire and some, uh, I can't even, you know, a person's body is smoldering. Like it's pretty hard to not have some emotions around that. But in that moment, like I have a job to do. And like, I'm, that's honestly how I am. I just kind of detach and I just go move forward. 
And I think in, in a way, like, hey, that, emo- <laughs> that emotionalist part of me might have served me very good and made me actually a good officer so I could be, be good in those times of, of, um, of critical, critical um, whatever. <laughs> I can't think of a good, good word. But how, again, how does that show up? Does that make me a good dad? Does that make me a good husband? I got to tell you, absolutely not. So, um, you know, that's that's the thing when you look back at your childhood and, and looking at now, how do those how do those things come to play? And you're right. And so it's like it's funny when my kids, <laughs> I tell I tell I tell my kids, you know, do this or do that, and like simple things. I'm not, and I say it in a nice tone and everything, and it's like they'll look back at me and be like, I'm not doing that, and like I am so triggered. I'm like, what? Like I would never talk to my dad that way in a million years. And so I have to continually remind myself, you know, a lot of these emotions and a lot of these triggers are just old things that are coming up for me. And like you said, um, and that's been a big, you know, a a lot of men that I'm connected with, we're actually having a lot of the same conversations that you and I are having with kids and it's just different and they're not um, behaving, quote unquote, um, the way we'd like them to. And so what I've really been trying to instill and do, and I actually had a parent coach uh, teach me this, but I think it's just critical. And to your observation of just creating kindness is I'm really just trying to be intentional with my time with them and having this special time. So like just 15 minutes a day, and it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's just 15 minutes. I mean, think how much time is like we spend a lot of time with people, but how often is our phone or something near us that's going off and I got to post, I got to do this, I'm an entrepreneur. And it just gets lost. So 15 minutes of like devoted time with my boys, just them and me. And we're like, and the game is special time. It's whatever you want to do. Let's do that and really connect. And I think the more, this is kind of like my back backwards way of like hacking behavior is like, if I just connect with you more and more and we just do the things that you want to do, there's going to build trust. Um, there's going to build familiarity, I guess you could say. But I think really it's the, it's the trust aspect. And and over time, they're like, hey, dad loves me. And, you know, eventually when I do say, hey, could you do that for me? The answer is going to be yes. And those are the moments where we get to, yeah, like you said, teach things and create that create that kindness, right? Because that's going to prevail in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was walking my son to school the other day and I forget what he did. Well, there's one time where I actually caught him in a lie as well, but and I was stern with him. And his face kind of just, you know, lost all the color. And then I processed it. And then I also let it go again. I'm not going to be like angry about it forever. But when you raise your children with kindness and compassion and gratitude as the norm, and you can discuss so many things with a child, you don't need to scream at them. When they've done a thing, because they're going to do a thing, because I did lots of things as a child that warrant an elevation of tone and maybe an increasing intensity, then they're like, holy shit, my dad doesn't normally talk to me that way. This, I must have really screwed up this time. So, and I've had, you know, like my my, uh, son's mother, this earlier on, you know, she would scream at him at everything, you know, and, and, you know, the problem is, is that when it's something really important, how do you separate that from all the other things when they spilt something or they didn't make their bed or whatever and you were screaming at them? So I think by having, like you said, that that time is so important, being present with them, showing that you care, showing that you're always going to be there. I think that's a real thing. Um, but also, would you scream at people in the general public? Like, I'm, There's an issue at the moment where people keep parking over the sidewalk here 
where I live and start and people pushing push chairs and kids on bikes have to go into the road to get around these selfish assholes that leave their trucks in the street. So I'm having to go to these neighbors' houses at the right time and be like, hey, you know, this is what's going on. These people are having to do this. Can you just move your truck out of the way? There's a huge space in front of your truck. As opposed to what the fuck are you doing, you idiot? Move your fucking which is what has gone yeah. on in my head. Yes. But yes. it's the same thing. So, you know, I think that's such an important thing is your children are young adults. How would you talk to a grown up? Can you kind of mold that into the way that you talk to your child? Yeah, my wife even would tell me that in the past. She's like, you can't talk to these guys like they're a suspect, which I never felt like I really <laughs> did. <laughs> you got, really you got them never... cuffed face down on the floor? <laughs> yeah, I, ne- I never really felt that. I went to that extreme. I, I think that was a little hyperbole, but I know what she meant. I, I mean, the reality is, uh, the reality is it all comes back to my story as a kid. It comes back down to like, I wasn't raised this way. You know, they say like zero to seven. That's the age where like your personality is formed, like based on neuroscience and stuff as a kid. So like you, and I'm sure you, you interview people that that talk about stuff like that, but like zero to seven, that's that critical time frame where your subconscious and, and you're, you're, you're basically programming yourself. Like, yeah, you will change the brain wires and changes as, as we grow older. Sure. And makes new, new neural connections, but, like who you become as a personality essentially is like solidified in those, those years. And like you said, kids are constantly, they're just, they're a sponge. They're just absorbing everything and they're watching everything and things that you think they didn't even notice, like they're picking up on. So, you know, it's a really, it's a really critical time. I think in, in those years to be, you know, making sure that you're delivering some high level parenting, but yeah, like you said, I mean, for me, it's just, Constantly, I, I know like those triggers for me is all because I was raised in a certain way. I was raised to fear my dad. And really, it sounds bad when I say that, but he was a good daddy and, and I didn't really get spanked tremendously. I did, but I grew up, at least I internalized, like, I'm not messing with that dude. Um, and so there was always, you know, you just think about it in terms of parenting, you know, or even a relationship. There's like, we're side by side, like we're almost equals. Well, I definitely knew like my dad's the higher, like I'm not messing with him. And I don't think it needs to be, I don't think you want it to be that way. I think you want there to be that, that more like, Hey, we're, we're going through this together. I'm walking with you. We're going through life together. Funny thing though. I <laughs> I have a neighbor right now. He's, he's a renter. So that always causes problems. Uh, renters, as you know, they don't care as much about your home or the neighborhood. And so we live on a corner lot. And so he's parking his truck here and um, it's just spilling oil and, tar he's got he's does some kind of construction and it's just spilling all over the place it's absolutely an eyesore it's atrocious and like you said i got all these thoughts going through my my head finally i see him just the other day we're coming back from a afternoon dinner walk and uh i just talked to him just very nicely i was like i was very nice about it like you said there's no reason for me to jump down his throat but i was like what are we what are we doing like <laughs> what's happening here like and i i was kind of upset with him too that he never even came like some of it got on my lawn and stuff and he did, he didn't say anything it just kind of bothered me but um my son came my son saw it cuz we were all walking together and he came running and he was like dad what what did you say to him like what what did you do i'm like my 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 son i think was hoping like for like I, I don't know i think he just he was hoping for like a yelling match or something and i'm like nothing, man. I just, just had a talk with him. I'm like, we just, we needed to have a talk. Like that was it. I just wanted to have a conversation and like, but like you said, that's another moment, you know, where he's like registering like, Oh, like you can just have a dual conversation. It doesn't have to be. And I, you know, I just told him like, 
what was going on. I'm like, I wasn't too happy with it. And that was it. Yeah, I think he's just more likely to get a result. I mean, I did with one neighbor. He, he started pulling us up and then I got still got to talk to someone across the street. But again, it's like, it's not affecting me. I'm a physically capable person that can walk around your car. Yeah. I just don't like seeing four-year-olds having to cycle in the street because you can't be asked to park your car properly. So, you know, yeah. there's no way of articulating that without triggering people. Um, yeah. Just before we move on to, you know, your timeline, the transition out of the the profession often is very jarring for people. Now, your dad was in a generation where we weren't having the conversations that we are today. What was his transition out of law enforcement like through your eyes? Mm. Yeah, good question. So his his transition was very interesting because he he had, and I don't know how often they do this, but he had served 23 years and they gave him a deal. They said, hey, they called it the golden handshake. I don't know if you heard of these golden handshakes, but basically they said, we will give you another two years of like, as if you worked, if you just leave now, <laughs> you just retire early, which is a great deal, right? Who wouldn't take that? Like basically like you almost, it's the equivalent of working 25 years, you get your pension and, um, and that's it. And, and you can leave now you're off the books. So he took that deal and I don't blame him. Like that was a good deal. And at least in California, um, at, uh, you know, at this time, law enforcement had a pretty good pension system where it was like 3% at 50, meaning for every year you work, you get 3% of your total net worth. So just to give people an example, if you worked and you made $100,000 every year and you worked 25 years, 25 times three is 75. So he would get $75,000 for the rest of his life and his pension. Pretty good deal, right? So he took that deal. And uh, I think he thought, all right, like I've done it. I'm living the great life. Like this is what everybody talks about. And then shortly after, he started getting jobs like as a security guard working. And I was like, dad, I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you know, like just trying to keep myself busy and and just, you know, make a little extra money. Like, you know, I'm getting good money, but like I'd like a little bit more. And I was like, yeah, I was like, but then he would come back home complaining about how stupid these jobs were and like how they were belittling to him. And like, you know, the guys he's working with are just, you know, of course, of course they are. You're working in a more of a high caliber profession and then you're working with security guards. Like these guys aren't going to make you grow or make you think differently. And so I just remember seeing that and it reminded me too, in my er earlier on in, in law enforcement, I had a um, several mentors, but I had one and he was a sergeant and he said, listen, Joel, one of the biggest problems with law enforcement, he said, these guys, they think about this career that they're going to have and they're going to they're going to have this amazing career and then they're going to retire. Nobody, though, plans their life after retirement. And that's why he said, you see all these guys just dying right after they retire because their whole life was work. I'm just going to work, work, work. And then when I'm 50, I get to retire and enjoy all my, my life. Right. And I kind of felt like that was for my dad. I just remember seeing that. And I'm like, dude, like, you know. What's cool? Like, what's the game plan? I, I, I told him, I was like, you know what? Honestly, you should have just stayed working. I, I would have just worked the next two years and maybe even longer to like just get your pension even up higher. Right. Um, because he had a, he had, a, he was in a good spot. He was doing detective work and stuff and he liked it. And so, like, he, you know, it was, he could have kept doing that for a while. So I, I just look at that and just kind of re, it reaffirmed for me, like, have a plan when you exit. Um, you know, know, know exactly what you want to do and how you want to live after, after law enforcement or whatever your career is like, have a plan. Like that was, that was the big thing for me seeing that. And I just remember thinking, 
oh, hell no. Like, I don't want to be working. Like, here's the thing, too, that I dawned on. I'm like, why? <laughs> you just retired. And again, the the dream, apparently, the American dream, at least a lot of what I see is like, all right, yeah, you're going to work for 25 or 30 years, get a good retirement, get a good pension, and then retire and live the good life. Well, if that's the dream, supposedly, then if you say you're going to retire, actually retire, like start living the good life. Like you're working for like pennies here and doing things that don't like, um, don't like revitalize you and like charge you. So like living like in purpose, right. And passion, like to me, that just seems worthless. Like I, I wouldn't want to be doing that. And so that to me was big and just really seeing like, again, one is definitely have a plan when you get out. And then the second thing was if you're going to retire, then like legitimately like do nothing, like go start living your best life. Go start like, I don't know, being on a beach somewhere and like going to the gym and cooking good food and just enjoying yourself. Cause that's to me what it would be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to retire and then go work security jobs. Like that just, that doesn't make sense to me. And by the way, I know a lot of law enforcement guys who do that. They work a lot, um, they retire and then they go get a job being a security consultant or something. And they're a lot higher paying than some, some um, security job like my dad was working, but it just, it just kind of, I don't know. It's just confusing to me. It's like, how much, how much money do you, do you need still? I, I don't know. Well, I think what I see where people um, struggle is you can transition into another um, purpose but that's the thing, you know, if you're just coming out and you want more money and you end up working in a store or whatever it is, you're not going to have the same fulfillment as when you're, you know, in a uniform working, hopefully, with a group of men and women that you loved. But if you transition and realize, okay, I was a law enforcement officer, I have this set of skills, I'm going to use that in a completely different capacity part-time because I want to downregulate and have more time with my family, but I'm going to do this now. You know, and I think that's the problem is if you truly just suddenly stop and now oh, I'm just going to play golf the rest of your life, I can see how that, you know, is not exactly intrinsically driving you to last a long time, you know. But if you find whatever purpose looks like, volunteerism or whatever it is, alongside the rest and recovery that you've earned, that to me seems to be the magic kind of combination that gets a lot of people to have long and, and fulfilling retirements. I agree, man. I, I completely agree. It doesn't have to be money based. It can be purpose based, right? I think uh, Tony Robbins always talks about like the six human needs. The people that there's a book out there called the Six Human Needs, and it talks about what need, what, what 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 do we need? And like one of them is growth, contribution, significance. Like, are we driven by significance? Like, what people like look at me. I did this. Are we driven by just growth, learning? Are we driven by contribution? Like you said, charity work. Um, and so you, you need to fulfill one of those six. I can't think of the other three off the top of my head, but you've got to fill those. You got to fill those needs in order in post-retirement and what that looks like. You need to be thinking about that because again, I've you've seen it too. People devote their entire profession to that. And it's the saddest thing to see people like literally die within a month or two of retirement. It's like, and then I just think like, for what, like, what was it worth? Like, was it worth it? You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I know my dad did a lot of work actually with the church and stuff. So he felt good about, you know, contributing and, and doing that, which was good. 
Yeah. Now, what about his lifespan? I mean, was he able? To, is, is he still with us now, or have you lost him? Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, you know, amazingly, and we'll give. I'm sure get into it. I moved to Idaho just last year in July, and unbeknownst to me, my dad moved out here. So we're like we're in the same town, but it's it's a far distance. We're like 15 minutes away, but we're in the same town. So it's pretty it's pretty neat um, that I get to see him a lot more. So it's it's pretty cool. Brilliant. All right. Well, let's walk you through the, the journey into law enforcement then. Just tell me a little bit about what you were doing athletically in high school and then, you know, walk me through that journey, whatever career aspirations you had to joining Oakland. Yeah. Okay. So in high school, I was, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think we're always trying to, I think that was a weird time for me because I was trying to figure out who I was, which I'm sure kids are constantly trying to figure out who they are. But um, it's like, am I a jock? Am I a nerd? I went to a private high school in Napa. There was like 162 people that graduated in my class. So pretty tiny, right? Uh, very good school. Um, and I was commuting on a bus every day, 45 minutes to get there in the mornings and stuff. Uh, and my parents asked me, they're like, hey, do you want to go to this school? It's, an, it's you know, we got to pay for it. It's private, it's private school, but we'll do it if you want it. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I have no ties to Fairfield and where I live, like, I don't care. I want to go to the best, like send me to the best places if, if, if we can. So I got in and, uh, you know, started going, I was playing baseball all my life. And then when I got to high school uh, and I, and I would make the all-star team and stuff. So like, I knew I was good, <laughs> excuse me. And then when I got to high school, actually one of my good friends who was also from Fairfield was like this amazing shortstop. Guess what? I was a shortstop too, but I'll tell you right now, he was way better than me. And he played like on the traveling team, uh, before going to high school. And so I was looking at like, do I want to do this? Like I've always done baseball. And then I just kind of fell off. I was like, I stopped doing baseball and I just was like, you know, I'm just going to focus on academics. And so that's what I did now in high school. Uh, you know, right now I walk around, I'm five, seven, I walk around 150, 155 pounds. So I'm not the the biggest guy, but in, even in like eighth grade, I remember we had to do every, you know, you have to do the PE test. And so I remember I did like 16 pull-ups, which is pretty good. Um, I don't know how they looked, but they counted them. So I was, <laughs> and then I remember I got into high school and same thing happened. I did like 20 pull-ups and the guy who was the PE teacher was like, dude, you got to come out for the football team. And he was just saying that, I mean, he, he did want me to play, but I never shook him up on it. But what I did get into was weightlifting around in high school and even more so when I was 18. And really one of the things is I focused so much on academics though in throughout high school is I wanted to, I felt like I was missing something and I was always like athletic, um, maybe not at the high competitive stage, but always athletic. And I wanted to, I wanted to, my buddy was into bodybuilding. And so I wanted to transform my body. I wanted to learn how to lift and I wanted girls to like me too. So, so that's really where in, in high school, I wasn't really into any sports other than, you know, I was always active, but just not into any sports. My dad bought a weightlifting set. So we had, uh, like a complete set in the garage. And I remember getting into, I didn't know how to lift. So my dad bought me muscle and fitness magazine. I had the Joe Weider subscription. I probably had that for like three years and I was just diving into it. I just, I knew all the body, like I was just, I knew all the bodybuilders, Flex Wheeler and uh, Jay Cutler. I just, I knew all of their stats and what they were doing. And I just got fascinated with it. And that for me, I think when people look, when I look back, I think that was kind of my, 
how I started getting into the health and fitness world, like really diving into nutrition and stuff. And I would do, now I look back, I would just do the silliest stuff, right? Because it was just all about protein, protein, protein. So, I mean, I would eat the crappiest bars that were out there, the protein shakes that would give me gas, uh, eat as much chicken as I possibly could just because that's what they said you're supposed to do. You want to get big, get eat protein. So I would do all that kind of crazy stuff. I'd be in the gym like six days a week. And I loved it though. I loved it. So, um, yeah, that was kind of what, that was kind of what shaped, I think my, my, uh, health and fitness journey. So what about career aspirations in high school? What were you dreaming of becoming then? Was it already a police officer or was there something else? No high school. Like I said, high school was, was tough for me. High school. I, I was, I didn't know who I was. I was trying to figure it out. I didn't know who my identity was. It was, it was a really crazy time. And I'll tell you why, because my friends were going to this, the high school I went to was a good college prep school. So my friends, they knew exactly what they wanted. They were going to Stanford. I had two friends, three friends that went to Stanford. I had another guy that went to UCLA. These are all like my closer friends. Another guy went to UC Davis. Did anybody go to Harvard? I don't know. No, I don't think so. Anyways, I, like these are the guys I'm surrounded with. And I would say, do you know where Joel went? Absolutely nowhere. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I'm going to tell you why that was a huge problem. Because my life, I was trained, and that's why I think now I look at it as like how I'm going to raise my kids. I was put into a system and just, I was in the system and I was like, go to school, get good grades, Joel. And that's what I did. That's all I knew to do. Go to school, get good grades. And that's what I did. And then I got out and I was like, holy fuck, like, what do we do now? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? I'm 18. Like, go get a job, go in the military. And I was confused, man. My parents got divorced when I was 18. I think that also probably shook me up a little bit. And just I I felt um I felt a little bit lack of guidance there from them. Um I think it was on probably it was probably me too, but I felt a little bit lack of support. I mean, obviously they were going through their own thing. Um, but I felt in sense of like, I I don't know, am I supposed to apply to these colleges? Is that the next step? Is that what I do? Like my friends, they were very clear, like, I wanna go, they knew like I wanna go to Berkeley, I wanna go to Stanford. It was like their dream. I didn't have these dreams. I'm like, I don't know, like, yeah, it's a great school, but do I dream to go to that school? Like what makes, like, I don't even know what I really want to do in my life. And so I almost was this close to joining the the air force and joining the military. I went through all their testing um, just cause I'm like, I don't know what to do. And this will buy me some time I'm hoping. And um, I always felt, I always felt like I had like, um, and I always wanted to do something with my mind and body. I felt like I wanted to do something physical and I wanted to do something that also required some, you know, it wasn't, just shoot them, shoot them up and kill people. Like I want to be like, I want to be like a tactician. And so I almost joined the military. And then at the last second I pulled out, cause I'm like, I just don't know. I don't, I don't know if this is the right move for me. And so I ended up joining the, just a junior college locally. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to do this. And just hopefully during this time period, I can kind of figure out what do I really enjoy? What do I want to do? And then explore that. And at the time I was, I was doing jobs in like sales. So my buddy, I don't know if you ever heard of Cutco knives. So they're they're just a brand. They're actually a really good brand of knives, but uh, they love all these eighteen year olds and like twenty year olds working for them, and um, they are masterful actually at building. I think young great minds, and 
my buddy got me into it because he was doing really well with it. And he's like, come on. And I did. And it was great because it got me into the world of personal development. That was really where I started getting into like Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, all these guys. And I started reading all their books and just learning how to like shape my mind and be better and all that kind of stuff. So, and that led me also to getting out of my shell, like becoming more of a people person. And so that led me into that. And I think I was like, well, it looks like successful people have businesses. I want to do that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, so while I was in college, I thought, well, where can I go that's nearby that you study business? Because I want to do something with business. But UC Davis, which was near my house, like a 20-minute drive from from the Fairfield area, were, they didn't have a business program. They had economics is what they called it. So I was like, oh, all right, well, maybe I'll do that. So I ended up getting into Davis and then I I kind of changed my major a couple times. I ended up doing political science. They call it international relations. I did political science and um, international relations. The difference between that and a poli sci degree is you need a language. I'm like, I'll choose Italian because I love Italy and I one day I want to go there. And so I choose that and I thought, well, based on my major now, Maybe I'll like join the FBI or something. That would be a really fun job. I'll be, I'll be like the born identity. I want to be, the, I'll do something like that, right? That'll be fun. And so I, I started, um, I ended up going to Italy for three months. Also, I studied abroad for a semester, which was another really impactful time in my life. Really got me out of my shell. Really made me aware of like, oh my God, there's so much more to America. We think America is just the greatest place on earth. And it is in many respects, you know, I don't want to say it isn't, but my first month there was difficult to transition because I was so busy, busy, busy. And like Starbucks is open 24 hours a day and I can just get whatever I want. And over there, I had to go to the store to get like shoes or something. And I had a break between like one o'clock and then whenever my classes are, I had a break, I remember. And so I'd go to the store and it was closed. I was like, what, what the hell? And uh, it's because guess what guys, they have siesta from like one to four and then they come back and then they open the rest to the, to the evening. And that would just, ah, oh, just lose it. I'm like, come on, did you people work? Like, I want to get things done. By the third month, though, I tell you, I really embodied it and it really made sense. I'm like, maybe this is the way people should be living. Like, they're just so relaxed. They're so, there's so much ease. They're really just enjoying every moment of life. There's no hustle and bustle. And I really appreciated that. And so I kind of brought that back into my life. Anyways, long story short, when I got back, it was like, hey, uh, what are you going to do? So I remember I applied to the FBI and, um, you know, I applied for an internship and I didn't hear back and I'm waiting and waiting. So I ended up selling cars in the meantime, right after I graduated high school, cause I needed a job and they paid decent and I already had a background in sales. So I'm like, let's do that. I always was doing sales stuff. And I remember I was walking up the stairs one day cause I was living at my dad's house. I was 25 and I was like, man, I got to get out of this house. And my dad looks up at me as I'm walking up the stairs. He goes, Hey buddy. He's like, uh, just, you know, uh, Oakland's hiring. Cause he had this law enforcement magazine that, you know, they'd say all the jobs they were hiring. And I, I looked at him and I go, Oh yeah. And he had been telling me, he goes, Joel, you know, I know you want to work for the FBI. That's great. I actually think you'll really like local law enforcement and why don't you just do it? Go with local law enforcement, work there for two years and then go to the FBI. If you still want to do it, I go, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. And so I looked at him and I remember I was like, you know what? Fuck it, dad. Let's go. Let me try. So I applied to Oakland and, um, I didn't know how dangerous it was. I just knew that the Oakland, they had the Oakland A's because we'd go watch 
baseball games at the the A stadium as a kid. And that was all I really knew about Oakland. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's how I got started. I was like, again, and what really attracted me to law enforcement was I got into martial arts right when I turned 18, I always wanted to do it. My parents never put me into it. And so I love the idea of mind, body, soul, and that, 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 that kind of, um, living. And so that again, kind of embodied to me what police work would be is like using your mind, using your body, being physical, but also having that mental like tactician kind of side of it. And I thought that'd be a great um, career for me. So that's how I, that's how I ended up getting started. Now, which martial art did you start with? So I did one, it's called Kaju Kenbo and it's a hybrid street martial art. They like to tout themselves as the first MMA because it was founded in 1947. And if you break down the the lineage, Kaju Kenbo, Ka means karate, um, ju means judo jiu-jitsu, ken means kempo, and bo means Chinese boxing. So it's a blend of various arts. It's a very brutal martial art. And if you anybody's done kempo, um, everything they know there's a lot of breaking sequences in there. And so that's really how this was. The joke for me, I always tell people is like, there's probably in every move I do is probably a groin strike, <laughs> groin strike or eye distraction, you know, something where it's very similar actually to a lot of like, I think, you know, Krav Maga gets a lot of um, the publicity than Kaji Kembo doesn't, but Krav Maga gets like, that's the, that is the street martial art. Uh, and I think it's really good. A, a lot of the same moves and things I see that Krav Maga do, we do in Kaji Kembo. So it's a really street martial art um nothing gentle about it like jujitsu is very you know jujitsu is like the arte suave it's very like gentle and like um obviously there's some brutal things there too but in general it's a it's a softer art and uh this one is not it's all about breaking things striking um yeah brilliant yeah it's it's interesting there's krav maga in the states there's such a diverse spectrum i haven't really been exposed to you know the the super effective one taught by people who are out on the streets but i also see sadly in krav maga there's almost like a franchise element where you know you can get someone who basically you tell has never even punched their way out of a wet paper bag teaching it too so i know within those two walls there's an incredibly effective art but it depends on who's teaching it and you know the you know what sparring looks like and that kind of thing yeah i mean yeah you're gonna find that i think in every art you know the thing i will say and uh, there's so much politics in martial arts too. It's just, it's sometimes it's just, it's just so stupid and silly. And like, when you talk about like people getting uh, degrees and stuff and just <laughs> the background that I always see, like that guy should have got a black belt or he promoted under so-and-so. And then he went behind so-and-so's back. It's just so ridiculous. Like, I just want to train. I just want to have fun. I started doing jujitsu in the last, um, man, it's been a long journey, but maybe it's been like 10 years on and off. And I, st- when I, when I left Fairfield, cause that was my home for doing Kaju Kembo. I started doing jujitsu because I just wanted to learn a different art. The one thing I will say about jujitsu that I really appreciate is, and, and you do this a lot in Kaju Kembo too, but there's a lot of point sparring and, you know, um, it's just a little, it's just a little bit different. But what the thing I like about jujitsu is that you're always sparring. You're always like fighting somebody and you get to feel that energy. <laughs> and so um, to me, it's like, if you're moving up the ranks, like, you know, you're better because you're like tapping people. Or they're tapping you. So there's no, to me, like there's no accident, right? That doesn't mean anything though. Like a jujitsu black belt can get knocked out on the street any day. Like anybody has their number. So, you know, that means nothing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, with you coming from a you know, seemingly quieter town, um, talk to me about Oakland. What were you seeing through a police officer's eyes? <laughs> okay. So Oakland, 
I had no idea what I was getting myself into, which was probably a good thing. Because if I did, I probably would have never done it. The thing about it was my dad told me when I was getting, you know, I applied to two different police departments at the time. I applied to Oakland and another department Concord at the time. And um, I was just, I just wanted to get hired. I just wanted to get a job and get out of my, my dad's house. That was my goal. And I thought it'd be a fun profession. And like he said, like, do this job, see how you like it, and then go work for the FBI if you want. So with Oakland, I remember my first day in FTO. It was over. I was in East Oakland. Um, now, anybody who is an Oakland police officer, will. there's always a, you know, there's always some, anybody that's listening to this that's worked for that department will say, West Oakland's more dangerous because the way we were separated at the time was pretty much you either worked in East Oakland or you worked in West Oakland. And so there was always kind of like, oh, he's a West Oakland cop. Oh, he's an East Oakland cop. And so, well, we have more calls for service. Well, we have more shootings. They would always try to, um, you know, say which one's better. Uh, Personally, in my opinion, East Oakland seemed more violent, but hey, I didn't work a lot in West Oakland. So anybody that's listening that worked as a West Oakland cop, I apologize. Um, (laughs) But I, so it's my first day of FTO and you know, it's overwhelming. You're just trying to keep track of the radio. You're trying to maintain officer safety. I'm a 25 year old punk kid who thinks he knows more than he knows and thinks like, Oh, I'm a, I was a black belt too at that time. So I got my black belt and then I ended up getting to the Academy. And then, so again, I, I felt strong. I felt courageous. I felt good, but um, man, I had no, I'm just, I was overwhelmed. And I remember we went to a Walmart for a theft. And so it was a, some kind of like petty theft case. And then at the same time, we're leaving that call. We're driving to some other other call. And a woman is yelling at us out the window like, hey, I need you to stop. Like this happened. And my, my FTO is like, can't do that right now. Like we're going to something else. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my God. Like it was like from one call, I just remember being so fast. And I'm like, how did he know like, how should we stop for her? Like, I mean, why are we not stopping for her? But he knew at the time, like, no, that's, that's not a priority. Like, and also what he also knew is like, and I didn't know this too, is um, a lot of people lie to you, believe it or not. And there's a lot of stuff that's just complete bullshit and you actually have to ignore. And I don't mean that to be in a mean way. Just, you have to, it's like, this is not real or this is not just because you're yelling and screaming at the top of your lungs. doesn't mean that it's more of a priority. It just, that's just how you get attention. And uh, I just remember that, but just, yeah, I just remember that day still being like, oh my God, I'm like, I don't know if I'll be able to keep up with this. But luckily you just, you just continue the path. Um, you know, you just continue showing up day in, day out. And, you know, I had good people, I had good mentors. Um, but yeah, I just, I remember that, I remember that FTO phase. I remember just showing up on, I remember another case, I showed up on this like, huge, like melee of a fight and it was just crazy and it's just like i i i didn't i i didn't know how to differentiate like like how do we how do we make a decision here like these guys all seem like bad guys like what do we do i remember going to this call like there was like one gang member with another gang and like they're all just yelling at each other and they're like you need to do something and i remember another officer who was out on the streets he was new but he had he hadn't been out much more you know he was on probation or whatever and he was just going to sit there and do nothing. And I remember my FTO was like, no, that's bullshit. We're going to, we're going to do something. If he wants this guy side, and he told me, he's like, you got to make sure you do something sometimes on these calls. Some guys will avoid this, but you got to take action and make a decision. And so I do remember that. Um, but 
and I, yeah, there's just so many things now that you're stirring up for me. Just so many memories of just, just absolute though, like confusion. I remember we were behind a stolen vehicle, which is always an exciting thing, but my FTO didn't tell me an FTO for anybody that doesn't know is field training officer. And he didn't tell me that it was a stolen vehicle. He was just doing it all on the sly. He was like running the plate and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden he just stops the car and like lights. He's like, Hey, we're going to pull this guy over or, you know, it's this stolen car. I'm like, wait, what? You know, and then like we ended up running out to the car and like, and that was actually not the, that was an old school tactic that he did, but that wasn't the preferred uh, method that they teach in the academy, which things like that happen. Now we don't do that, but it was just overwhelming. I was just like, okay, I'm just following your lead, you know, with my gun out and that, you know, that was protocol, but not running up to the car. And so it was just, yeah, really overwhelming. Oakland, I hate to say this, you know, but it is, it's a very, uh, at least in the areas I worked, it was a very violent city. And I don't think I'm even making that up. Like if you want to go look at the top five most dangerous cities in the world, I bet you it's still the top five. It, it always was when I was working there. And it was like the top five robbery capital of the world, like numerous years in a row, according to the FBI statistics. And so, you know, the thing about it is you talk to, it was interesting, even talking to FBI agents, they even said, they're like, I think you guys are probably like the best cops in the world just because you deal with the most. The criminals have to continually adapt because they have to learn how to, and they're really good out here. So they have to adapt. And so it makes you adapt. And so there's that continual adaptation, right? But they were even saying like, we've never seen anything like this. And like, we've worked in all these cities around the world, other tough cities, Detroit and da, 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 da. But like, this is on another level yeah. because we had FBI come and do undercover operations and stuff like that. And so again, my dad, the reason I was attracted to Oakland though, because he said, and I didn't know this. He said, Joel, if you do five years in Oakland, it's like doing a career somewhere else. I'm like, oh, okay. It's like going to the Harvard of police schools. That's what I thought. So I was like, sounds good. Sign me up. I, I'm a overachiever. I want to do this. And so that, that was really all I knew, but man, was I in for a, a world of uh, unbeknownst, you know, change for me. Yeah, well, that learning curve in, in the city is pretty steep. I worked in Anaheim, and the gang activity there was was crazy. And then Orlando, which didn't have as many gangs, but it just had all the crimes still. You know, the, it was you know, more like prostitution. You know, the the the, the um, John would come in and murder. Excuse me, the, the pimp would come in and murder the, the John and take his money. And then he'd murder yeah. the prostitute, and she'd end up in a dumpster. You know, just, just horrific stuff like that. Um, when I think of Oakland, I do think of gangs, though. And in California, there seems to be so many different, you know, um, racially, you know, racial background gangs. What did you see in that city through your eyes as far as that element? So the gang world has changed tremendously. And what I mean by that is, and I don't know how it is right now in Oakland, but I feel, I feel, you know, when you look back in time, you had like the Al Capones or whatever, right? You had like these very distinct, uh, we are this, we are this gang and there's like rules to being in a gang. Right. And like, even those gangs, which I think was in a way was kind of honorable, I guess, like the, I'm talking about the Al Capone era. Whereas I think they had rules where it was like, Hey, we don't shoot innocent bystanders or, you know, we have like a certain code that we operate on. The gangs now are not operating on any code. They don't give a, can I swear on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. They don't, and they don't even give a fuck about themselves in my opinion or the people closest to them. They just do whatever. And there is no organization in terms, there's no code of ethics. There's no code of anything. It's just kind of like, 
they're so like decentralized. It's kind of like, it's kind of crazy. I mean, there obviously is some sophistication, but it's different in that sense. So at least where I was working, I was working in what some might call central Oakland. So I was very around very um, a Latino community and it's known as the Fruitvale district. So I was around a lot of Latins, which was great. I got, um, I, I loved, I just loved that culture and I, I love speaking Spanish as much as I can. So that was always, that was a, always a joy for me. Um, but so of course you had the typical like Norteño, Sereño gangs. And then there was like another offshoot gang. They called themselves Border Brothers. I don't even know if they're around anymore, but um, they were like some weird subset gang of like the Sereños, I believe. And I have no, they were very small. So very interesting um, <laughs> nonetheless. And then of course the black gangs, what I noticed in the black gangs is again, they're, they're just, it stopped becoming like Bloods and Crips. And I think in LA, that's still very prevalent to get the bloods and the crips. Now there might be some ties into Oakland through those, through the heads of those kind of gangs, like the typical bloods and crips. But in Oakland, you had like these gangs just forming themselves out of like nowhere being like, I remember one of the gangs, their name was like the money gang, the money mob or something like that. And these guys would just go out. And the interesting thing too, at least back in the last 10 years, from what I could tell, the drug, the drug game really stopped becoming, it stopped being, um, drugs stopped being like a big issue in, in, a, in a sense. Like it used to be like, oh, drug dealers killing other drug dealers, right? Or like this turf war between drugs. It stopped being that. Like people were still selling drugs and using that as a way to funnel money. It, but it, and it, and it, but that game started to lose, like it's, it wasn't as big of a, like, you know, I think crimes and, and trends and crimes and they all, they all start to change. They evolve and, and things change. They have, they go through evolutions themselves. And so it's not that, that changed completely. Now people, what they were really going after was it was really a, other gangs robbing other gangs. So that was really like where the beef would start or maybe like so-and-so looked at my girl weird or whatever. And then they would be shooting up each other's houses. I mean, and they did not care. It could be broad daylight. That was the thing. Like I said, they were so brazen. Didn't matter what time of the day, when they didn't care. And I think that is like, what's really fascinating to me is just like how lawless they just absolutely didn't care. Um, and so, but the, yeah, that was the big interesting thing with the, with the gangs, I would say is, um, in terms of like there, uh, yeah, there is a hierarchy, but I just mean like they were so, um, like just broken up and like new gangs would be forming like the money team. And like I said, and it's just like, uh, the, I don't know if there wasn't, there was like no affiliation to necessarily bloods and crypts. It was just like, yep, this is our gang and we're going to go out and we're going to rob a ton of people, carjack people and just make money illegally. And that's what we're going to do. And we're not tied to any of you other gangs. We're just doing our own thing. And so, yeah, that was, that was, I think, you know, really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, thanks for that perspective. One thing I want to put to you before we go to transition to San Francisco, and this is always, you're the hardest profession to ask about this, but it's amazing, again, all these different voices that we've had now and their perspective. Very long story short, because I've told this story so many times on this podcast, so I'll keep it very brief. As a firefighter paramedic, you know, when we were all younger, we were told drugs are bad, this is your brain on drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you get into a uniform and you start to see the true cost of drug prohibition, the the empowerment of the underworld, you know, the overdoses, the homelessness, etc. Um, I 
So my family moved to Portugal. Long story short, they had a horrendous addiction problem. They decriminalized addiction in the year 2000. Not selling, not not smuggling, but just the addicts. Funneled them into, and it wasn't mandatory, funneled in, educated them on all the resources that are available, told them you're not going to be arrested for being an addict as long as it's only a personal use. And they reversed the addiction crisis in that country in less than 10 years. Wow. What is your perspective? excuse me, your perspective working in two departments on the war on drugs and the prohibition on addicts. And, you know, can we do it better, especially coming obviously with you having a, a kind of holistic wellness background? Yeah, that's such a good question. I, you know what? And it's something that I haven't thought too deeply on. So I will say that, but it's something that I have thought about several times, just like, man, like what, where do I stand on this? Because I'm confused about it too, right? And I do see, like, I'm a guy who, like, I grew up too. Drugs are bad. Don't do them. Like, you're a bad person if you do drugs. And so I always had that mentality. And now I'm like in such a holistic health world, like people are microdosing LSD and psilocybin. And I'll be honest, I don't see anything wrong with that. And from what I see, it's extremely healthy. And I'm like, man, like, if I could heal from traumas too, and my traumas aren't as bad as most, I would want to do that. And so to me, it's ridiculous that people aren't given those opportunities to do that. So that's in general where I stand in terms of like like something like LSD. Oh, that's so bad. Is it? I mean, if you're doing it correctly, I think it can be very powerful. So I don't see anything wrong with that. Now, yeah, the prohibition aspect is interesting because here's where I'm torn, I guess. I... <laughs> It would be an interesting it would be interesting to see right because think about it if you legalize drugs then the cartels and all these people who are funneling in drugs to me it's like you take away their power it's like well there's it's not illegal so and if you're the government you can probably tax all this stuff so that's even even better right so everyone's making money but then there needs to be really no killing over all these you would assume like there'd be way less killing because i mean sure there's always going to be like our cartels better like you can't do that you know but there would be a lot less of that, I would imagine, too. Same thing with the local drug wars. If it's all legal, what are we fighting about? So the, I think the part that I'm torn about is like I associate drugs with also other crimes, right? And that's true. I've seen it all the time, right? So drug addicts will break into cars and commit other crimes to continue their drug habit. So like... That I guess, you know, I guess some, you know, maybe, and I'm just thinking about stuff, you, you put me on the spot. So I guess the crime there would be breaking into the car. Yeah, that's still a crime. But the, let's say I found drugs on this person too. Like that wouldn't be a crime. I'd be okay. I think honestly, at this point in my life, I would be okay with that because I am, I see a lot of the same things and I'm reading a lot and learning a lot about addiction and it just to me, it just goes down into dopamine and neurotransmitters and opioid pathways. And those get wrecked. And you're never going to solve that unless you get some deep help. I think the biggest... Pro so then the other part of me, though, like I've been in San Francisco, uh, the last eight and a half years, I was in San Francisco working. And, you know, they started doing like these injection like clinics, like, come on, come over here and get inject, inject yourself for free, Right. And uh, not for free, but, you know, without, you know, they're just around in the tenderloin and you can get injected and um, do your heroin or whatever and then go out. I just don't know what that looks like, like in the like it, 
yeah, it sounds good, but like, what does that look like? So then you got this person like going around and this, then what happens afterwards, right? Like, that's my thing. I don't know what Portugal did, but it's like, if we're doing these clinics, I think at least in the US, these there needs to be like a robust support system. And there is absolutely not. And all they've done, at least in San Francisco, is drugs are a huge problem in the Tenderloin District. It's been like that from the beginning of time. And they've decriminalized. If I, as a police, I remember, by the way, when I was, a, when I, I guess I'll kind of tie into this into San Francisco. I remember like, like my first day of going to San Francisco. Guess where I worked? The Tenderloin. That's where they sent me out. That was my first coming, coming from Oakland. I started, I worked in the Tenderloin. And I remember like my first day, I was walking out of the station and like a guy was literally in front of the Tenderloin station, like injecting himself. He was in a wheelchair and he was injecting himself with, I think it was heroin. And he was like, oh, oh sorry, should, should I stop? And I was just like, I was like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, I mean, you've already injected it in you. Like, I'm not going to arrest you for, you know, possession. I could arrest you for like being under the influence, but I mean, come on. So like, that's how, and I don't, and he wasn't doing it on purpose in front of the station. He was so clueless. He had no idea. He was like right in front of the station. So, um, but even when I was there just eight years ago, when I first started, there was already a decriminalization on drugs. And so you could arrest somebody for drugs. They didn't care. The DAs would just be throwing out these cases anyways, or ref- they call it referring to drug court, drug court. Great. That sounds great. But like, what does that mean? What kind of services are these people really getting? Like if they're really getting support and it, it, I almost feel like you'd have to go to a clinic for like a year or something. And I don't think the U.S. could take that on. I don't know what they did in Portugal, but I think it's a savvy model. I think you're right. I mean, it's an addiction problem and they're already decriminalizing drugs anyway. So even if I arrest you, there's really no penalty. So for me, even as a, as a cop in the tenderloin, I'm not even really looking to arrest people with drugs. I mean, I'm just telling you, like I, that doesn't give me any, I don't feel any, as a police officer, I want to be fulfilled, right? Purpose, passion. We're talking about that. Me arresting somebody for drugs that I know is just going to get out in the next couple hours. And it's going to mean nothing. Like I'm going to sit down, put all this effort to writing a report and it's going to mean absolutely nothing. I'm not going to arrest that person. It's just, it's a waste of my time. I'd rather do something more fulfilling. I'd rather go look after like bad guys with guns and stuff like that. I don't want to be wasting my time on a drug dealer. So even the mindset of a police officer gets changed. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure there's a lot of people like that too. So yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I think if there's a better model and there's some success, but I think like doing these kind of half-ass approaches, like we're going to put a um, an injection site right here, you know, and, and people are going to come. It's like, great. But then what? What services are they getting? How are they getting support? Because you don't want this long-term, do you? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's the thing. You talked about people breaking into cars. If you solve the you know the addiction element and you get people, again, off the streets because they're going to medically run facilities and that, that healing journey is subsidized, they're not going to need to break into cars and rob houses and all those things. So that's what Portugal saw. All those crimes started going away. Now these police resources and these court resources are opened up to get the drug dealers, the drug smugglers, cut the head off the snake completely. And then, of course, all the regular crimes that go along regardless of the addiction epidemic. But I think that the the piecemeal, you hit the nail on the head. Look at Obamacare. What a shit show that was. Now, I come from a country we have national health that when funded, I think, is the best healthcare system on the planet. Now, is it well funded at the moment? No, but I mean, the the philosophy behind it is incredible. You know, you, you proactively stop people from getting ill as much as you can, and you take care from the young, the elderly, and the infirm. Um, but by checking boxes like addiction sites and you know in, in, safe injection sites, which are great on their own, but that's it. 
that's the same way as saying, oh, there's EAP, you know, police officer. You can just call that if you have any issues. It's not solving the problem. It's not getting to the root of the problem. So that's the the very thing is that we're... We don't need to just, oh, we legalize marijuana. Well, good for you, but there's, you know, 400 other drugs that people are taking. So until right. you address the entire addiction element and ultimately the mental health crisis, why are people filling their bodies with this? And let's be honest, let's pull alcohol into the equation. It's not illegal anymore, but we have a huge problem with that. And then let's pull fast food and soda, you know, because we have an obesity epidemic, which is absolutely tied to a mental health crisis. What's the common denominator? Is it that substance? Or is it the fact that for some reason we're the most affluent country on the nation, and excuse me, on the planet, and seemingly one of the most unhappy? So until we have that conversation, we're going to throw money at this war on drugs and continue to watch people murder each other on our streets. Yeah, man. I mean, you're so right. And I was just thinking as you were talking so many times. So here's a funny thing, too. When I got to San Francisco, um, I remember in Oakland, you know, I think people think, oh, yeah, Oakland, San Francisco, they're, you know, both high, um, high volume kind of cities, calls for service and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, the biggest difference with Oakland and San Francisco, and some guy told me this and he was exactly right. In Oakland, we dealt with violent people. In San Francisco, we dealt with crazy people. <laughs> and it, it was just, I remember getting there and I, I'd never experienced such a homeless like epidemic. And I remember uh, one of the partners that I was working with early on in the Tenderloin, she was like, Joel, I mean, didn't you have like homeless in, in Oakland? I'm like, no. I'm like, like I, I probably had like two guys on my beat specifically that were like the local drunks that were like kind of like on the streets. But that was it. Like I didn't, I wasn't going to calls based on homeless. Like in, in San Francisco, they have a radio code. It's called 915. And 915 means it's a homeless related call. It's like a homeless person. And so they actually had their own call. Like, hey, you're going to this type of call. It's a 915 call. So it it was just crazy the the problem that they had there. And then the other thing is the San Francisco general, they have their psych ward. And you want to talk about systems that are broken and stuff. It makes no sense. I would take people there on a 5150, which is like a mental it's 70, it's up to, up to a 72 hour mental health hold. 5150 is the health well uh for people that don't know, it's the uh welfare and um Jesus, I can't even think of the the W and I, uh, the welfare. But so it's a code that you're allowed to use to put people on a 72 hour hold to check their mental status because they can't take care of themselves. They they might hurt others, or they're just uh, they're unable to care for themselves, right? So that's why you put people on these holds, and you would bring people there, and literally by the end of your shift, they'd be walking out. You'd be like, I just brought you there. <laughs> so this was just a turncoat. I mean, they were just kicking people in and out of there because they were overwhelmed. They couldn't deal with it because there's so many people coming in. And it's like, what are they going to do? They're going to shoot them up with some toxins, some injections of some sort to calm them down. And that's it. And then they kick them out the door and it just, the cycle just continues to repeat because there's no actual effective plan in place. And they just can't deal with it in San Francisco, especially because San Francisco is very unique. Also, there was a story in the news many, many years ago that like uh, another city, and I can't remember, it was like maybe Arizona or somebody in Nevada, the, 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 the chief or somebody was telling him, hey, you heard about San Francisco. He was telling his homeless people that you ever heard of San Francisco? They're handing, they got really good benefits. And people are like, really? He was paying for their bus tickets. It, it kind of became a big story because they, they were like, that's illegal or I don't know if it was illegal, but they didn't, it got a lot of bad press for him because 
basically you got people paying people to get on homeless people to get on buses and go to SF. And so you've got to, everybody knows SF's the place. I remember talking to a guy who said <laughs> he actually looked in like pretty good shape. And he goes, yeah, I, I'm just here. Uh, I'm just here for two weeks. I got to get some dental work done. Like what? Excuse me. He's like, yeah, I just, um, if you're like a resident here for two weeks, at least you can show that you're resident. You can get free dental work like for homeless and stuff. So he's like, yeah, I'll just be here. And then I'll go back to Florida or wherever he was from. I can't remember. So like people knew this game, right? And so San Francisco is very sought out because of those reasons. But again, the plan to actually get people better, that holistic approach is just not set in place. It's all band-aids. Yeah. And again, I mean, mental health is at the root of so much, you know, it really is. And I think that's the problem. If we bring the mental health conversation in, that's where the true homeless conversation is, you know, and you see this, I mean, we all, we've all seen this county, you know, city drives the homeless over the county line or the, the city line or whatever it is. And it's just these people being bulldozed back and forth rather than firstly looking at them as humans, of course, and then secondly saying, all right, what's the root cause of this? And again, we find ourselves back in the same same place. Now, I want to be, you know, make sure that we kind of move this forward so that we we get all the things that we want to talk about today in this conversation. So you transitioned to San Francisco. You worked there again for you know, a number of years. Talk to me about the beginning of the COVID epidemic, what you were doing when there were no masks and vaccines and these things, and then walk me through what happened with the mandates. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah. Uh, went to San Francisco, had a lot of good friends that went to that department and they said, come on over. It's a great place to work. You can still be active and you're able to do more. So I thought, let's do it. Let's try it. I uh, worked in the Tenderloin in the very beginning. That was like my training ground. Uh, then I went to a station called Ingleside, which is kind of a blend of, I guess, Asian and mostly Latin people. And then I was in the Mission District, which is Latin and white. So I was like back where I was in Oakland, like I was in the Fruitvale District, which is pretty much Latin. And then I had an opportunity to go to the academy, which is our training division there, and be a trainer uh, with specializing in use of force. And it was always something I wanted to do. When I was in Oakland, I was I just got on their um, training staff, defensive tactics team. And I just love being a teacher. And again, maybe the martial arts part of it, I just love that and be able to train and make people better. And then I get better too. I learned. So it's a selfish reason too. And so I... Um, I got there. I was in the training division and uh, for almost, man, I don't know, two years or so, maybe or a year, year and a half. And then, yeah, what was it, 2019 or something? That was when the late, the late, the bottom, the, the early outbreak, the 2019, I think, December or something like that was when COVID broke out. And so um, they, I remember they, they said, oh my God, there's this huge outbreak. Um, we're shutting everything down. Uh, the academy staff were, were shutting um, the academy down for two weeks at least just to like reorganize, regroup, figure out what the hell is going on. And in the meantime, since now I was in a very lucky position because the academy staff, the training division is a full-time position. So uh, I know a lot of departments, they will do both. They will work the streets and work uh, part-time at the training division. So they do, they do everything. Hats off to them. SF just was able to do that. So anyways, uh, they say, Hey, uh, since you guys aren't doing anything and we got to pay you, we're still going to pay you. Uh, i tell you what, why don't you go down to the tenderloin? And uh, the mayor's really not too happy with, uh, cause COVID is spreading based on, uh, you know, it's, it's very, it's 
it's it's it's very easily spread and so we don't want people in groups right the whole six feet six, six feet thing well guess what a lot of homeless people downtown and they like to congregate and they like to be bunched up and bunched up together and you know especially downtown is um so the interesting thing is the tenderloin borders the mayor's building so she sees it every day and so yeah it's an eyesore and she doesn't want to see it and here we are we're cracking down on covid but you got all these homeless people and they're going to saint jude's to get their food and then they come and walk to the city square and they eat it together we can't have that that's terrible so hey joel and all the training academy staff guess what we're going to kick you out of the academy and you're going to go down to the tenderloin and uh, work for the next two to three weeks and basically usher people around they were doing a lot of street sweeping they just wanted us to kind of keep people moving and that kind of stuff so I did. I, th- I thought, whatever, this is ridiculous. But um, yeah, I mean, that's what you want me to do. I'll do it. No problem. And so I did it. Um, and then, yeah, what do you, I mean, do you want me to, t- <laughs> then all of a sudden, uh, like life, I guess, kind of resumed quasi back to normal. Um, I went back to the academy and started working again. Of course, as we know, over that time period, there was a lot of mask mandates and a whole bunch of other things. But yeah, did you want me to kind of just catch up to speed in terms of well i think it's just important to underline when you were out there you know all the men and women in in uniform um at that point there were no no vaccines it seemed like bsi was kind of limited ppe um so you know what what were you offered as far as protection then and then you know what was the discussion when the vaccine mandates came in and did that contradict the very things that you were asked to do earlier yeah great point so I just wanted to stress a couple of things. One is I am a very big natural health guy. And so that's uh, how I think about a lot of things. So I will say, even for me, knowing what I know about health, even for me, I mean, I would say the first two weeks of the pandemic coming out, even I was like a little like, oh man, I remember when they were like, do not make sure you scrub down your Amazon packages and all this kind of crazy stuff. And I remember being like, whoa, like, this is crazy, you know? And uh, even maybe I got like kind of swung up in the um, atmosphere of fear. And it took me maybe about two weeks or so. And honestly, after that, I called BS. I started saying, this is BS and I'm not buying it. So um, I was out working and yeah, like I said, I was out working for like two to three weeks. Um, they did provide masks. I do remember them providing masks. But like, here's the silliness, right? Like when you think about, I don't think a lot of people understand how viruses get passed. They really don't. And so when you really understand how a virus gets passed, you'll realize that a mask doesn't do anything. A mask is is ridiculous. Now there's a good N95 study that shows that that can have some effect. But even then, in my opinion, masks don't do anything. So we had masks. But what about this though? Viruses can be passed. They were saying even just through your eyes. So, okay. So what are you going to do? You're going to wear like goggles the entire time. You're going to wear a mat. Like the people that are wearing masks, what about your eyes? Right. You're not, you're not protecting that. Um, you think a face shield, you think the virus just like gets blocked by some face shield that you guys are wearing. And then they like, no, of course a virus can go anywhere. So, um, so it's just, but it's interesting, right? It's interesting what fear can do. The fear is amazing. Fear is an amazing tactic. So yeah, we had masks and stuff. What I find fascinating is that I never called in sick. I did exactly what you told me to do. I went out, moved, talked to the homeless, had many enjoyable conversations with them while I'm out there. Sometimes I have even better conversations with the most affluent people in San Francisco. They're more down to earth, these homeless people. I actually enjoy them. So um, yeah, I had conversations with many of them. We were whatever. I think we were wearing masks at the time. And then um, yeah, never missed a day. And then 
they shuttled us back to the academy. We had, you know, um, they had like testing and all that kind of stuff. And then I remember um, there were talks about, you know, then the next year came. So that was 2021, I think. Um, 2021, and they were talking at the top of the year is like, hey, is there going to be a mandate for this? And I was like, man, I'm kind of worried about that because that just doesn't jive with me. And um, so what happened is then that kind of bled into, I think vaccines started becoming more, January at the top of 2021, I believe vaccines started becoming more available, if I remember correctly. And so they, here's another funny thing, right? For first responders in San Francisco, specifically the police, perhaps the fire too. I can't remember now. They, they, I think they purposely did this because at the same time, uh, the BLM movement was very uh, at the height, very popular, and so uh, there was a lot of anti-police rhetoric at that time, and so uh, the police were somehow uh, kind of like bypassed. In the sense, like all these other first responders being like nurses, doctors, they were getting access to the vaccine. And supposedly the police and fire and everybody else was supposed to, too, because they were considered first responders in high risk settings. But the police, they were somehow like delayed in getting their vaccines. People were pissed about it. They were like, how is this possible? Right. They were supposed to be the ones to first get access to it than like the regular public. I remember that. Um, and so they were kind of denied. They were just kind of like they were they eventually got it to them. But it was just like maybe a couple of weeks or something delay when all the other first responders were getting them. So there was a lot of um, bickery about that. And then I remember in July of 2021, they said, Hey, um, we are going to mandate it, but you have the option of filing for a medical exemption or a religious exemption. I said, okay, that's fair because that's pretty much the standard when you look at normal vaccines and stuff. And so I applied for it. Um, I remember I applied for it. I think it was the, uh, the 19th of August quickly came back right away. The 20th, my religious exemption got approved. Awesome. Thank you very much. And then shortly after September 16th or something like that, they said uh, the, the health, it was very confusing because the health officer, a lot of things happened, but essentially they said, they, they took my exemption away. They said, Oh, you know what? We don't actually believe you're that religious. We need you to fill out a secondary criteria. And so here's what happened. 150 of us, there were about 300 of us in San Francisco police that applied for religious exemptions. 150 of us got approved right away because we were like the early ones to get approval. There was about 150 of us, other ones in the queue that um, hadn't got looked at. Now, I don't know what happened. What I heard in the rumblings is that a city attorney got wind of the 150 of us that got approved and thought it was, that was, a, that was, couldn't believe it. Like, this is crazy, negative. Who's ever approving these? I'm going to start looking at these. So what they did is it was a very sneaky tactic. They said, you know what? We're going to take the, we're going to group everyone. They had to figure out, they couldn't deny me my religious exemption because they already approved it. That didn't make sense, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask for secondary criteria to really prove your religion, right? So we're going to send it back and then we're going to send it back to the other 150 that haven't got approved. Well, guess what they did now? They put us all back to the same mark. So that makes sense. And guess what? They denied all 300 of us. How amazing is that? <laughs> I guess all 300 of us just aren't religious enough. We didn't make the criteria. So it was pretty crazy. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, people succumbed. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I get it. I, I know a lot of those people, good, hardworking people, had families, just had a kid, just bought a house. They were, you know, they're doing their best. And it was what a, what a tough decision to make, you know? And um, 
So yeah, I mean, the numbers started dwindling uh, down and there was about 80 of us that said, well, we're not going to do this. A couple of us were on medical leave. So that was a little uh, medical leave, meaning they were out on medical. They wouldn't be forced to get the vaccine until they actually came back from um, their medical leave. And then about 40 of us, I know for sure, held out in in October. They said, if you don't get this, we're going to fire you. And I said, okay, I guess you're going to have to fire me. And so I was a little shocked, but they did. They fired me. (laughs) So that happened last year in October, um, which was pretty crazy. So this last two years, and I've, I've repeated this a lot on the show, you know, my stance has been very middle of the road, you know, and I've talked about this a lot. If you are anti-vaccine in this particular case, then the most important thing in your world is your underlying health. So you can have a natural immunity to whatever comes into your system. If you are very pro-vaccine, then the most important thing in your world is natural underlying health so you can have as good an immune response to that vaccine as possible So the only truth in this whole conversation is making humans as healthy as possible. And what I saw in the last two years, and I've discussed this many, many times, is everything that you and I know improves human health, improves human immunity, was taken from people. And everything that destroys human health and immunity was hand-delivered to their doorstep. And so I am not opposed to vaccine. I did't think that the vaccine was, you know, was going to cause me to stroke out and drop dead. But I also didn't feel like I needed to have a vaccine. But I myself, my my grandmother's uh, 104, almost 105, and she's still, she's probably, you know, days away from passing away now. But I was having the travel to the UK and then go and see her and the barrier to entry was a vaccine. So me, myself, I took it for that reason, not for a fear of COVID, because after, as you said, that initial, oh, shit, what's this? We were like, oh, okay, it's 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 you know, an opportuni- another opportunistic microorganism that seems to be taking out people that have pre-existing conditions. So let me be part of the solution. Let me be one of the humans that keeps this country going while we protect our weak and infirm. But the biggest issue I have is with these mandates. To have, and I'll give you a perfect example, the men and women of FDNY, who everyone called heroes after 9-11, were being called you know, selfish and all this stuff because they didn't want to have the vaccine. So the mandates I thought were disgusting. And then what I don't know if you've noticed, but the conversation now when every man and his dog that's vaccinated is getting a form of COVID, why are we not going back and going, everyone who lost their job should get their fucking job back and be paid for it? Because if this had been, if you just take this shot a hundred percent or you know 99 percent chance you will not pass it that's a different conversation but it is not what was happening it was definitely seeming to reduce symptoms and it was a value to people that were already sick you know not from COVID, but you know pre-existing conditions but was absolutely not stopping this like the polio vaccine for example you know has done so to call it a vaccine i think was a complete misnomer in the first place but to take away all that knowledge and experience and destroy careers of first responders who have selflessly served on this fucking whim is absolutely disgusting and this is the conversation that needs to be picked up now when we know almost every single person said yeah i think i had covid you know a month ago two months ago three months ago And if that had truly been a vaccine that was doing what they said it was going to do that would justify stealing a career, it didn't. And so that has to retroactively be discussed. And I think these people need to be reinstated or compensated. Yeah, man, it is. It's really amazing just to see. And again, what 
the media can do. It's so powerful in just manipulating everything. It's like, um, and and you and I were talking about this offline, like just the term anti-vax is just so, um, it's got such like fuel in the fire and just like, ah, oh, like it just creates such angry, like you're an anti-vaxxer. Like I can never be a, like we can't even have a conversation now because I'm an anti-vaxxer, right? Like, it's just like, come on. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, I always tell people like, like you just said, if I, I have my mother's in her seventies and my dad's in his seventies, same with, if I were around your mother, I would never want to be the guy that was around her that caused her to die. I believe me, like I care about humanity too. Like, I don't want to be that guy that's getting people sick. Like if I truly believe that this was the, the end all be all by all means, I would do it, but I don't think that's the case. And I think the evidence is now showing that I was right about that, that instinct. The other thing is, you know, I really got into learning more about vaccines. But by the way, I'll just say, like, I have vaccines. As a kid, I have vaccines. My mom, you know, that's that's what you did. That's I grew up in that system. I talked about systems. I grew up in that system. Like, you go to the hospital, you get your checkups, you get your vaccines or whatever. I, I have vaccines. Um, now, eight years ago, when my first kid was born, I had to, you know, the, the question of, you know, getting him vaccinated, that was when I really had to first start looking at vaccines. I was like, wow, I don't. I don't really know. Like, I never really thought about this, right? So I started doing a deep dive on it. And the more and more I learned just from the industry, I wasn't too happy about. And the only thing I will say about that topic is, and I suggest everyone do this because, again, this gets so wild into just, if you say someone, think about what you're saying. And I and I remember when I interviewed Rob Wolf, who's uh, known for like the paleo diet. Yeah. You're shaking your head. You know, Rob Wolf, he's got, uh, he's got a great company called LMNT element. They have like this, this salt drink. Rob's been in the health industry for a long, long time. Let's just say that. And he just did a documentary called sacred cow, which talks about, um, the, the actual truth about the meat industry and, and why it's actually really healthy if you're doing it right. But we were talking, he goes, yeah, you know, it's crazy because if, if you say like you like meat, for example, right now, like you're in the meat camp, People automatically assume, oh, well, that means you hate vegans, you're also an anti-vaxxer, and you're also against BLM, or you hate black people. And it's just, it's crazy when you think about that. It's like, yeah, wow, how, how true is that? It's like, people just make these assumptions. like, And the media has done such a good way of like, even if I'm like, I'm really pro-meat, oh, well, then he must hate black people and also others. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about, right? So, uh, but they've done such a good job of casting that shade on it. And the same thing with the whole anti-vaxxer thing. It's it's been done. It's been manipulated over the years that it's such a bad thing. We can't even have just a re- decent conversation about it. So, but what I would strongly tell people to do, and and this is one of the things that I always tell everybody, is go back in history and look at any vaccine and just tell me, is there a legitimate safety and control study? And if you can find one that is legitimate, then I have no problem injecting myself with everything. And what I mean by that, because you're probably saying, but Joel, there has to be safety and control studies. Well, sure, there are. They're just not legitimate. So, for example, I'll give you just an example. Look at the most recent one. They just came out with a new booster. And what what if you look at any of the natural health people that are, I see them on the on Twitter all the time tweeting, it was based off, it was done off of eight mice. Eight mice. Like we're basing this entire study and why you should boost your 12-year-old and everything on eight mice. Now, is that a legit safety and control study? <laughs> and what's the time period? I don't even know what the time period was. I don't even look at it sometimes anymore because I'm just thinking it's such BS. But, you know, 
just look at that and then tell me like, is that, was that legit? Like, would you want to inject your kids like based on that legitimacy? My answer, I'm guessing most of you would say, would say no. And so that's just where I've kind of found myself. And, and that's kind of led me to be more prepared when the pandemic, and then also knowing history, right? I went back in history and they did the same exact thing when the swine flu came out in the seventies or eighties, I can't remember. And it was a mandate. And then guess what? People started getting injured and the president, I can't remember who was uplifted and was said, all right, after about a year of mandates, he uplifted it. And so I kind of expected the same thing. I, I really, and we're seeing that actually, we're seeing a lot of injuries happen more ever than in history with this one. But, um, I didn't expect to get fired, to be honest. I thought they would have, uh, that did surprise me, I think, at the end. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure. And I'm sure that that, you know, must have been such a load for so many people because, I mean, we talk about mental health. We talk about your dad's transition out. You know, there's so many compounding factors, but one of the biggest ones is organizational betrayal. And you literally risk life and limb for your community and for your department. And then, you know, at the, the a blink of an eye, this happens. So... Talk to me about your journey into the holistic health side and then, you know, what you did with that transition to what you're doing today. Yeah, so it's been crazy. I mean, I, the only thing I'd say is luckily I was a little bit more prepared than most people, which I think led to my confidence of like making my decision. I could have been like a lot of people's shoes. I Believe me. So here's what happened too. I want to tell people this and I think they should always remember this. When I knew, man, my days might be numbered. I was, I was in fear. I was in panic. I was like, holy cow, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to support my family? Like we were just, we were, we were buying a new house in another state. Like this is crazy. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, what is the worst that can happen? And I was going down a list checklist in my head. And the only thing I could come up with was I'm going to lose all my money. That's what I realized. And that sucks. But I thought, oh my God. Then I started to smile. I was like, I'm going to have my family still. I'm going to have my soul. I'm going to have who the hell I am still. And they can't take that away from me. And so I felt really good. I was like, you know what? I think I don't care what they do. Take my money away. I, I, know, how to, I know how to build wealth again. I know how to build a business now. I didn't know how to do before, but now I do. So what's the worst that can happen? Because that was the only thing I really feared was the losing all my money. But I knew like, what's the worst? I could probably move back in with my mom and rebuild my wealth. So let's go. So I think people need to just, I just want people to realize that. And in the, in the end also, I was just, I had always been on the side building a health coaching business because I knew eventually I was get out of police work. Like we said, I have a plan. And I always, I started to gravitate more into this natural health world than police work. And so I wanted to, I started building it on the side, but having kids and just working overtime, it was hard to like really get it up and going. And so I had been building it again on the side and Man, um, I had hired a business coach in the last year or two, which made me also more ready to go. And so when that time happened in October, I just launched it. I had been doing multiple health coaching certifications under naturopaths and functional medicine docs and um, you know, physical training ones as well. And and yeah, man, so I launched I launched my health coaching business, really focusing on weight loss and gut health and even just detox because that's kind of what I what I understand best. And so that's what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, living here in Idaho, doing a, running a virtual health coaching business. I also, believe it or not, it's crazy. Uh, I launched a podcast three years ago. It's called the Hacked Life Podcast. I launched a podcast three years ago, back in December 20, right when the pandemic hit. There you go. I just forgot. 2019, December, because I always wanted to launch a podcast. I, I got so much out of podcasts 
when my son was first born, I was sitting there like a new parent being an idiot and holding him because so he wouldn't cry when he was during his naps. So I was be sitting there for like two hours, just holding him in a rocking chair. And I'm like, I got to do more with my time here. So I started getting into podcast and I thought, man, that'd be cool. One day I'd like to do that. I mean, and as you know, too, like not all the first responders in law enforcement, they'd see me like being healthy and doing things. They'd be asking me questions. I'm like, oh, dude, like it's this, this, and this. And they had no idea what I was talking about. I'm like, dude, how do you not know these things? I'm like, this is like three years old, like headspace, that meditation. We were talking about that. Like, dude, I've been doing this for a while. Like, why are you not doing it? And so I thought, man, I really want to create a podcast to be sharing these, some of these little tidbits that I'm doing that's really benefiting my life with all the first responders and everybody else because it's just invaluable. And so I started that in 2019 as my my kids got older, it was just easier to manage. So I started that and now we've been three years strong and that has also been really just rewarding and I've been able to do that. And 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 now that I'm not full-time as a police officer, I have way more time to dive into that and interview some great people and experts. And so, yeah, I've been doing that the last the last year now. So talk to me about that transition as far as regaining your autonomy, because obviously this, in this particular case, the decision was taken away, was somewhat taken away from you. You had a decision. You yeah. didn't want to make that choice. Um, but you served basically the same time as I did, about 14 years. And we think that we have autonomy, but it's it's amazing when you step out, you're like, wow, we didn't have as much as I thought we did. You know, we got told how to, you know, where to be, what to wear, yeah. what to, how to shave, all these things. Um what was the liberation element like for you when you transitioned out of law enforcement, having served for 14 years and then done your part to being your own boss and therefore not having to answer to anyone else anymore? Yeah. So, you know, two things on that. One is it's pretty crazy because you have to shift mindsets greatly because going from a nine to five, it's in a way, it's very simple. You jump in, you punch a clock, boom, boom, boom. You do your job, you go home. And that's just it. Being an entrepreneur is completely different. Like, And it's not linear. It's not this like linear path of growth where it's like, yeah, I just keep putting in effort and like things happen. Like, no, it's like this, boom, boom. It's like, it's like a roller coaster of like, sometimes you have good months, sometimes you have bad months. So the, the mindset shift is huge. One thing I will say is you need to be surrounded by what I found anyways, you need to be surrounded by other entrepreneurs and other people that are in the field of doing what you're doing. Because if I go ask one of my buddies that is still a police officer, like, hey man, like what else would you do? Like their answer for the most part, not all of them, but their answer is like, I'll just keep doing this. Or Joel, come back to police work. It's such an easy, it's such a safe job. It's secure. Get your 401k, get your pension, do this, get your medical benefits. Like it's safe, right? Entrepreneurship's not safe. And so you have to be somewhat like crazy in the head to be an entrepreneur. And so that's something I really realized. The other thing that you mentioned is, man, like, how do you stay on task? Right. Because at work, you just do what you're told check in, check out at this time. Your boss tells you this or what have you. Even if you're a boss, you know, you have another boss is telling you what to do. And that's just how it goes. You don't have that as an entrepreneur. So a lot of times there is no guidance. It can feel very alone. It can feel very unsafe. And so the mindset piece is key. I do a lot of mindset work in the morning. I do a lot of visualization. I do a lot of writing my goals because guess what? I wake up, I might seem very positive and I am, but I also have bad freaking days and I have bad months. And so I have to stimulate and stoke 
that flame to stay the path that I want and stay in that belief that good things will happen. And I think that's the most difficult thing because you're not getting a paycheck every two weeks. Like, you know, like, oh, I come in here and I get my check my every two weeks. That doesn't happen always as an entrepreneur. And so that's a crazy feeling. But then the neat thing, like you said, is you get to create that. And I remember a buddy of mine who also had the entrepreneur mindset and got out of police work a little bit before me, worked in Oakland, worked in San Francisco as well, believe it or not. And um, But we both had entrepreneur minds. And so we were always talking with each other and- he was just like, man, Joel is like one day, like, you know, like I just, I'm, t- I'm so sick and tired of dealing with the bureaucracy here. And like the people telling me what to do, especially the people that, and I don't, and this wasn't like, he, he doesn't think he's the smartest person in the world by all means, but like basically un- he said, he was saying to have unqualified people, like as my boss telling me what to do, who I know is like never done anything in the field. I've done way more than him. And this guy is telling me to like, Hey, you need to correct your report by, you know, you, you missed this. I don't know, a period here. It's just like, if that's how you get your significance, then great. But, um, and he, we, I, like you said, talk about autonomy and like making, making your own, it means a lot. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, I found it incredibly liberating and, you know, it, everyone has to, you know, make that jump when it's time for them. And I actually kind of was booted out of it through the universe and a whole bunch of coincidences. Um, but you know, the, the, the force multiplying element of, doing something in you know that that still has the same purpose but it looks different it's a different uniform um i i found it incredibly liberating i woke up the next day like wow i don't have to answer to any of those fucking idiots anymore and i'm not talking about everyone i'm talking about those yeah. two or three people that made your life a fucking living hell amongst yep. an organization of people that were trying to make the world better um so for people listening then tell me you know what do you offer if someone's interested in in wellness coaching you know what 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 have you got for them there and then talk to me about the kind of topics that are on the podcast as well yeah man so i am doing what i call holistic weight loss coaching and it's like what does that mean well my whole background is studying under naturopath so when people think about you know typical weight loss training. It's like exercise programs, which is great. I love exercise. I do it daily. Um, and they think of just like eating a certain, you know, diet, keto, carnivore, and restricting your calories. And I think those are all great tactics and they work, but I just look at things a lot differently. And what I mean is like, what about like, what about things like the liver? Like, are we, are we supporting the liver? Are we detoxing the liver? Because that has just as much effect on hormones like testosterone, cortisol, for sleep and rest and recovery, your blood sugar. So I think a lot of people just look at health in such a myopic way and they're just looking at calories, calories, calories. It's like, but what about these other things? And so I just, I look at it in a, in, in numerous ways from the mindset piece to the, the detox, to the detox effect. And then of course, uh, mastering your habits, mastering your sleep, and, and, and even then just cultivating a sustainable plan. I think most people, when they go on these crazy crash diets, that's why they're not successful. They, they do a crash diet, they get to that goal weight, and then they gain it all back because whatever they were doing, keto, carnivore, I don't think they're bad, but for most people, they're not sustainable. And the studies show that too. So that's what I work on. I'm also really good with gut health. And it's funny now that I got, uh, I got that stomach bug or what I believe was food poisoning. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I think now I'm even better with gut health <laughs> from what I've learned. Uh, so I, I've had some good success with that as well. And then, and then detoxing. And you know what? It's funny now, you know, I had a lot of, um, resentment towards the first responder community for a while. And just the sense that I was like, they just don't get it. You know, I was like, um, 
I'm like, you know, cause sometimes I don't know how often this would happen to you, but I'd be telling them things. And there was just like, just like dead in their head. It's like, Oh yeah, I don't want to hear that. Or like, it's like, I felt like, why am I wasting my time with you? Right? Like you don't even care that I'm like dropping these gems of knowledge on you. Like you don't want to change. And it just would bother me so much. I'm like, God, you're such an idiot. Like some of these guys in the community are just so stupid. And now that I've been away from the community, I'm actually like really feeling like a need to go reach out and help them. So I've actually started just looking for what new ways to work with first responders and kind of share my program that's worked very well for with people in the just regular community and really work with them. Because I think, as you know, they, they need a lot of help. And it's not that they're idiots. Like, like I would like that. I was like, so like, there was so much like, come on, you just don't understand. It's just, they just don't know what they don't know. That's it. And I think a lot of them, and you're never going to reach everybody. That's the thing, right? You're never going to reach everybody. Like some people, this is going to hit some people. It's not so, but I, I've been really trying to work my way back into supporting them and, and helping them. So that's been kind of exciting. And then the podcast you mentioned, the podcast, um, yeah, who am I, you know, uh, I inter- I interview a lot of health and wellness experts, but also, you know, I have a, a lot of just like entrepreneurs and just mindset people, um, you know, people that have started businesses, people like yourself, you know, I'm going to have you on soon. And um, I think it's all tied into one. I don't like it just to be health because I think, you know, imagine for me, I want people to get better. If you get 1% better, every day in your life, imagine like the compound effect that happens over a year's time. And so that's what I want my podcast to be. So I want to be talking to high, you know, high, like motivating people that are just crushing their life. Like, what are they doing differently? What can we pull from someone like you, from someone who's, you know, like Dave Asprey, who's started the Bulletproof and has a wealth of knowledge in the biohacking space to like fasting experts that I've had, like Dr. Mindy Peltz, Rob Wolf, I mentioned, um, just some really cool people, but most of them are health and wellness. But then again, I've had a lot of mindset people like, uh, I call them mindset, but entrepreneur people like David Meltzer, who's, you know, the movie Jerry Maguire was based on him. He made a hundred million dollars, lost a hundred million dollars and made it back again. I mean, the guy is just on a path to connect people to goodness and, and help them live a life of purpose. And so it all ties in. I don't think, you know, I always tell people there's no such thing as health. And then we try to compartmentalize things, right? Like, oh, my health is really, no, let me say it a different way. Oh, my job, my job, my work is really great. I drive a Ferrari, I make tons of money, but my marriage sucks. Or my health, I'm 300 pounds overweight. Like, we try to think that they're all separate, but they're not. They all bleed into each other. They're all one thing. And so that's what I'm really after is like making that one thing. And so that people can be better and live the highest version of themselves. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is, is, you know, you you look at the science books and it's the renal system and the respiratory system and you look at, you know, homelessness and everything and, and gun control and all the violence. I mean, it all factors down to the holistic human. And if you're not having that discussion, you just you're never going to solve it. So for people listening, then where can they find you online and, and the, you know, the, the coaching side? And then what about the podcast as well? Yeah, man, um, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So you can go to at Joel Levin coaching. Um, the website is joelevancoaching.com. I made it really simple for people. So yeah, www.joelevancoaching.com. And then the podcast is on all major channels, the hacked, the hacked life podcast. And I named that 
back in the day, I, I didn't know what was like, what am I going to name my podcast? And um, at the time I was really into biohacking, which is like this alternative health space, bio meaning like biology and then hacking. It was created, the, the term was created by Dave Asprey, who was formerly a computer hacker. And he was like, hey, how can we upgrade our biology using things like pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, red light therapy. A lot of times when I say the word biohacking, people think I'm talking about transhumanism. I'm not. Okay. It's really like, how can we upgrade our body using things um, like these technologies? And that's all it is. And so that's why I named that that, but it, we don't just talk about that. And it's, it's, again, it's just, it's a lot of good conversations. Well, Joe, I want to say thank you so much. I want to say thank you to George Ryan for connecting us before I you know, yeah. forget. Um, an incredible human being. So when he brings someone into to my radar, I know I have to bring him on. But uh, thank you as well. I mean, I know there's a lot we could have delved into on the holistic healing side, but I think there's so much uh, you know, um, depth to what you saw in and out of uniform. And obviously, if you want to learn more about the holistic side, they can dive into your coaching site too. But I, I just want to thank you so much. We've been chatting for almost two hours. And it's been an amazing conversation. Yeah, man, I appreciate you. Uh, I got to say, you want you run a an amazing podcast. And this is like the first deep dive interview I've ever done like this long, which is just really nice because usually no one's no one's gone that far back in my my path usually i think most people they have a very uh they go on podcasts and it's a very canned response but you really ask some good tough questions and really brings out the person and so i just appreciate you doing that and being the, the host that you are 